0: Hey, it's Andrew and today on the show we have Baxter Lanius, CEO and founder of Alternative. In this episode, Baxter shares his biggest lesson moving from an investor to an entrepreneur and the struggles he has overcome in the process. We then discussed the similarities between lead scoring and churn prediction with underwriting for approvals on loan applications and we finished off discussing how alternative financing options can be used to drive growth and reduce churn for your business. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads to inside of apps and team members' heads. Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. How do
1: you build a habit for the door. This is
0: churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. And here's today's episode. Hey, Baxter. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Andrew. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's
0: great to have you. For the listeners, Baxter is the CEO and founder of Alternative, a flexible B2B payment solutions. Uh, Prior to founding Alternative, Baxter was a fintech investor and served as a board member on several companies. He later joined Apollo Global Investing in Technology Businesses. So my first question for you, Baxter, is what has been your biggest learning from switching over from an investor to founder?
1: The biggest learning, I think, from from switching over from being an investor to a founder is is the level of detail that you need to understand and evaluate constantly across a number of different work streams, both at Victory Park Capital, which is one of the first institutional investors in fintech where I worked uh, initially on the investing side, as well as Apollo Global, you know, is very much investment focused. So we got opportunities in. And we evaluated those opportunities based on cash flow, based on revenue growth, based on existing capital structure, a multitude of different things. And when you become a founder, you know, your, your job is everything, everything and anything from hiring to building to product. And, and especially in the early stage, you don't have the team to support you across all of these different multitudes of, of, of business. And so, you know, I think that was the biggest learning is is how you know many places you need to have your hands in and really work as a team or work with one of your team members to build out, Um, which was a challenge at the beginning. But you know, now since we launched and 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 as we've grown the team, you know, has really we've got we've gotten to a really really strong place where I feel like we've hired an incredible team and people are really able to control different verticals of the business. And, and my time can kind of be let loose from some of those different um, focus areas.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that as well. I think maybe like you can get a, a newfound appreciation as well for all of the things that founders need to juggle on top of fundraising as well. Uh, so it definitely is, I think, in and the I, early days, one of the things to get your and head I had a little.
1: Yeah. yeah, I had a little bit of experience. I, I was the interim CEO of a Mediterranean restaurant, actually, uh, at Victory Park Capital, Um, but still within a private equity type structure, you know, you ultimately usually have access to a lot of capital, you have a larger team. And so there's just much more to delegate, you know, in the early stages, when, you know, you're a team of three, you really need to figure out, you know, to your best ability, how do you push the ball forward? If you don't have a product manager, if you don't have a data person, or you don't have an engineer in the seat and, and compiling all those resources and trying to make the best business decision um, was, um, was a incredible learning. And and I think, you know, we figured it out and do a great job today, but it's not, um, it's definitely not easy.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think in the early days as well, like there's, you have nothing, so you need to do everything, but it's about figuring out like, what is the most important thing that you can be doing and where should you be allocating your time? Because you don't really need to do everything as well. That's the other thing. I think the trap you fall into, like in the early stages, like, oh, but we don't have this, or we don't have X, or we don't have Y, or we don't have Z. But like, really your thing is like, get default alive, like start building a business. So what are the absolute critical things that you need to do that will get you there? And then everything else, what can come later? And I think, uh, at least for me, that's like now fourth time round, just figuring out like things that used to stress me around, like the first or second time, like seeing them, like now it's not even a thought anymore. It's like, it doesn't matter now. Like there's only one thing that matters for us. And just having that ability to, I think, understand uh, really helps speed things up uh, for you. In yeah. The end. Uh,
1: so. and it's all about prioritization, as you mentioned, right? Whether it's engineering, whether it's business, whether it's go to market, you know, there's so many different channels across all of these different work streams. And, and how do you prioritize the most important one? And, and I think that that's, you know, you nailed it on the head, Andrew. Um, you know, that's so critical and always be learning, right? I mean, that's just not just day one learning, that's also day 360, 720, you know, year three learning. Of, of how do you continuously work to create the most efficient business structure and efficient team possible. Cause you know, I need to take these learnings and then I need to also help educate my team members to, to make sure that they're prioritizing initiatives and efforts uh, as much as possible.
0: Yeah. It never stops. That, that's actually one of the, like the biggest things I think the podcast has given me really is, uh, although like we produce this content and everybody listens to it and they may hopefully like gain learnings from it. Like myself selfishly like a lot of the questions and the line and the direction that goes to is like now building my company i'm getting the learnings that i need in the moment from founders and from like uh people on the ground in the operations of the business like of challenges that we currently have so a lot of times like our editors will say to me like ah this sounds quite familiar to a challenge you're facing now at the moment and like yes uh, it's good of you to notice okay i think the learning aspect is really critical i think if anyone's thinking about a podcast like probably one of the best ways to actually learn is I can selfishly, you can actually ask the questions you want to ask uh, about your business at any given time. So uh, yeah, and,
1: and learning from others, right, which is, you know, for us at, at alternative within the B2B uh, payment space and B2B financing space, you know, B2B finance is not a new concept. <laughs> it's been around for, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. Um, and, you know, each iteration of it, we need to figure out how to improve the solution how to bring down the cost of capital how to you know increase the um, our ability to underwrite at an accelerated pace and you know since i started investing in fintech in 2014 you know 8 years ago the space has moved at an accelerated pace forward and each iteration is improving and and that's one you know real goal for alternative is is how do we provide financing solutions to businesses that bring down the cost of capital that accelerate the pace of underwriting and increase the quantum of capital that we're able to provide from a business standpoint so you know having these conversations and working with you know either learning from pre-existing fintech businesses or even looking at social media businesses you know it's all super important to figure out you know how do you refine the model and and how do you you know really execute on that thesis or on that product that you, that you want to build.
0: Yeah, so I'm interested then just to hear a little bit about what you actually offer. Cause I gave a, a very brief intro in the beginning, like you offer and you provide flexible B2B payment solutions. Um, what does that actually mean? So like, what does alternative do? Who are your main customers that you serve?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the core product solution that we have is basically a B2B buy now, pay later solution. So we empower our vendor partners to offer flexible pricing solutions to their end customers to ultimately provide their end customers additional buying power to close deals uh, faster uh, and increase the kind of book of business. Um, There are a number of other use cases that this solution offers, including reducing churn. So we have a number of customers who leverage alternative as a standalone solution you know, as a customer is potentially going to churn, you know they can use alternative as a payment plan to get them to not churn um, and and ultimately increase retention. So this solution is really a sales enablement tool as well as a financing tool um, to increase the end customer's ability to purchase goods from you or or services. We actually we work across a number of different end markets. We work with software companies very closely. We work with services-based business models. We work with agencies. We work with ad tech companies. Because ultimately in the B2B space, you know, there's a lot of challenges within payment solutions. Um, and that's kind of our core product number one um, that we're really looking to, to innovate on um, and continue to, to build forward.
0: Okay. Uh, that's very interesting. So just to put a practical example together, we say let's imagine Salesforce is your customer now. Um, One of their customers wants to purchase maybe a yearly plan. They don't have the upfront capital. They would come to you or they would go via Salesforce and they would have, Salesforce would offer them this sort of buy now, pay later feature. Uh, And then next question would be like, who does the underwriting? Then like, who's the one um, measuring the risk of this client that their clients want to sell to? Like how does all process work? Maybe give us a practical example.
1: Yeah. So Andrew, I think you've you've listened to a few of our other podcasts because Salesforce is my go-to, my go-to example. No, I haven't, <laughs> <I haven't>, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: but um, uh, but Salesforce is a, is a fantastic example. And 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 the reason why it is is because Salesforce is, you know, has very, very stringent pricing requirements and they don't discount and they don't offer any payment plans. And they're looking to expand into the S B market. And the SMB market is obviously more price conscious. So Let's take a a Salesforce contract, example contract of $60,000. We would work with Salesforce to create a payment plan for their end customer, the SMB. The SMB is looking to buy Salesforce, but does not want to pay $60,000 up front. So we would create a payment plan that enables and empowers the end customer to pay six installments of $10,000. Um, Now, that would be basically a very simple example. Our fees are either burdened by or absorbed by Salesforce or passed along to the end customer. So we give Salesforce that optionality. In a Salesforce example, they typically would, um, would pass along those fees to the end customer. So in this example of six installments, we typically charge 5%. So for that example, the contract size would go to uh, sixty one thousand five hundred and the SMB customer would then pay in six installments totaling sixty one thousand five hundred over those six installments. So it would come to a little bit more than than ten thousand um, dollars. Now, in terms of the risk to your to your second question, in terms of the risk um, portion of it, we hold all the risk. So we would pay Salesforce on day two and then we would collect from the end customer, over the subsequent five installments and you know if the end customer does not pay, you know we are on the hook to, to to collect from that end customer. And so we are also not only holding the risk on our balance sheet, we're doing the underwriting and we're also collecting.
0: That sounds incredibly <laughs> risky uh, and I'm just thinking just the nature of like general retention as well in the sense that's like if somebody just stops paying, typically you would just stop the service. But in this case, the user or the company has already paid upfront for the service. And how are you evaluating then and doing the writing from the end client? Because I assume as well, like this sh- needs to be a relatively fast process for it to work uh, and to be able to evaluate the end clients. Like um, how are you doing that on your end? Is there, have you automated this to some degree or is it literally like somebody making an application with you and then you need to go and do... Uh, You're in research so, and investigation.
1: Yeah, so the underwriting is fully automated. But just quickly on, on on your first point regarding how risky it is, so within we sign two contracts. We sign a contract with Salesforce, which is a partner agreement, and then we sign a payments agreement with the end customer. Both of those agreements are embedded into our into our technology platform, and so it's a pretty seamless process. Within the partner agreement to Salesforce, in the event that the end customer stops paying us we then have the ability to shut off the service that Salesforce is providing. Hmm. So if after three or four months, you know the end customer stopped paying us, we would go to Salesforce and we would say, customer A is, is, is not meeting their agreement. Please shut off their CRM solution. So as it relates to business critical software solutions and technology solutions or services solutions, um, it's actually a lot less risky because ultimately the end customer is not getting that specific service. If it's more call it social media or something that's not business critical, you know, to your point, Andrew, then, then the risk increases because the end customer can really just stop, stop paying you. Now on the underwriting side, our, our underwriting process is is very simple and, and streamlined on both the partner side as well as the end customer, because we ultimately need to, ensure that the partner is carrying out their duties as a partner. And we onboard customers within about two minutes. So we ask your, you to confirm your business information, um, which is kind of a one-step process. We then ask you to connect through a Plat API, which gives us access to your bank account information, which allows us to automate payments on our backend. So our entire backend on the payment side is, is fully automated. And similarly, based on that data, we then run a underwriting model based on, you know, how much cash is in the bank account, what last month's burn was, you know, we look at burn over the course of a a number of different periods. And then we also come up with a projected model as to what is your future cash flow look like for that business. And based on that, we rate the business um, and, and approve the business automatically. Um, currently our approval ratings are about 93%. Uh, and so we've had a lot of, a lot of success with this, this solution to date, but, you know, as you know, with any of these underwriting models, um, you know, for either the consumer market or for the B2B market, you know, it's a really, really point of competitive differentiation. And, and so our team comes from the hedge fund and finance world. And and we're looking every day to improve that modeling, improve the accuracy, And then also improve the turnaround time, which we've, you know, we've been able to do so effectively to date.
0: Very interesting. It sounds as well a little bit about like if we draw an analogy B2B in the sense, like you're doing a, like a lead scoring model to some degree from the marketing side of things. So, uh, you're capturing that lead, you're taking a look at a number of different variables, like where they came from, what their website traffic is, like what their Alexa rank, and so forth, we do on the marketing side. And then on that, you can sort of have this ability to predict what their LTV is going to be. But in your case, the likelihood to pay you back. And uh, then if they're going to become a good customer over time and retain or not as well. So the processes sound uh, fairly similar as well, I think, in the way that we go about measuring and trying to understand like user acquisition and then ultimately churn and retention uh, at the end of it
1: totally very similar processes and i think one of the things that's that's most interesting to me and one of the main reasons why i even jumped into this space was because the api economy continues to boom and so your ability to capture a lead and supplement that lead data with you know alexa information or with clearbit information or Whatever the third-party data provider is to really evaluate whether that's a qualified lead is is super important because we actually we do the same thing before we even receive their plaid plaid bank account information um, to evaluate you know how strong the lead is and and how you know what's the probability that they will be approved um, and and that data will only get much more transparent you know year to year and you know you look at all of the companies that are trying to you know create better data tagging create an API solution i mean it's really it's really incredible stuff and you know i think that this inherent technology will not only affect you know businesses on the marketing side for quality of leads it will also affect you know loan decision making even at the biggest of banks and and so that's really where we think we're most innovative and, and where we're really trying to, to compete and differentiate in the long run.
0: Yeah. So your direct competitors then today are the, currently the bank. So companies will typically need to go to bank to uh, get a loan for whatever the amount is to purchase or to pay for advertising for marketing services. Do you have any other competitors?
1: Yeah. So there, there are a handful of, um, Co- competitors in Europe, there are a handful of competitors in the U S everybody, I think takes a little bit of a different approach. Um, you know, there's some B2B buy now pay later solutions in both the U S and Europe that are very focused on B2B marketplaces. So a similar approach to a firm in on the B2C buy now pay later, where they're the kind of embedded widget within the platform. Um, no one's approaching the B2B, uh, you know, overall, um, Business models—the way we are in terms of leveraging sales enablement tools as a complementary offering within your existing workflow. So mm-hmm. no one has the ability to get up and running with a platform as quickly as you do with alternative. You know, we can onboard in, you in minutes, and we can set you up with a white label embedded financing solution that allows you to immediately onboard an end customer. But, you know, the alternative credit and the alternative financing space is, is quite large and, and only expanding in, you know, for e-commerce businesses, for instance, there are a whole assortment of different players, the services-based businesses and the kind of less tech-oriented companies, um, you know, they're still not really a solution for, um, which is one of our kind of key go-to-market strategies. And and in that market, you know, it's really just the banks that are providing, you know, SBA type loans, which, you know, can take up to eight weeks and move really, really slowly. Uh, And then, you know, again, as I mentioned before, on the B2B buy now, pay later solutions that are really complementary to your existing workflows and work streams. There's really nobody in the US who's, who's doing what we're doing.
0: Yeah, there's quite a lot of comments. We're actually going to have um, Phil Bellamont from Zilch. If you're familiar with Zilch as well, on the show uh, coming up. I actually went to school with him uh, in South Africa as well. It's incredible to see how fast that business has grown. And like I think all these buy now pay later uh, businesses, especially in these times, are are exploding. I definitely think what you're doing is unique uh, in the sense like you're providing this as a service to the end user. And I think that was going to be my next question then. And I don't imagine your churn or retention is particularly high, but you mentioned that your business model is basically you charge a standard fee for the loans and it's either covered by uh, the business or by the end user themselves. So there's no real subscription model, but if you want to call it a subscription model, it's the monthly installment that's being paid uh, back to you. Do you see many companies like adopting a solution like alternative and then taking it out like have you had any churn in that sense from your direct customer i'd say cuz you're serving two customers ultimately
1: yeah so so we we've had zero churn to date and and part of that is that we're not integrated in in company's existing workflows and we also don't charge a monthly you know subscription fee so, you know, we offer a free service, connect through, connect through Plaid. Um, and, and ultimately, you can leverage and, and utilize our services. So that's not, that's not an issue for us. The, the key piece to our business model is really utilization, as you kind of mentioned, Andrew, which is, if you have a hundred end customers, so if you're Salesforce and let's say Salesforce has a hundred end customers, which obviously is, is vastly underestimating their, their customer base. Um, but how many of those customers are using alternative as a, as a payment vehicle and payment solution. And our goal is to really be in a hundred percent of those transactions to ensure that we're offering all of sales end customers a much more simple payment mechanism within B2B transactions than what Salesforce is currently offering. And in the B2B space, you know, many of us just use a PDF invoice or an email invoice, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of innovation within that invoice structure. And that's really where we're building and where we're going, which is, you know, how do you leverage that technology and create a much more seamless payment solution so that Salesforce can can offer and collect much more quickly, reduce their accounts receivable days and receivable days, um, and then ultimately provide the end customer various different payment mechanisms that get them to check out sooner and also align interest. And by strengthening those relationships, you really, really create a, a really strong tight knit business model that then also, you know, to your point on churn, you know, reduces churn at the end of the day. Um, so it's, um, utilization is more so how we think of our business, uh, on a month to month basis, which, which also can be identified with churn, right? If you're utilized at 50 customers for month one and 40 in month two, you know, or you've had some sort of churn on that specific Salesforce partner account.
0: Yeah. The the thing on that as well, then, so just to understand a little bit further is, you don't, would you ever serve customers who have monthly plans it would typically only be like companies you only do yearly and the customers want to have a, a lower breakdown. Would that be the case? Because I, yeah. I don't see a reason otherwise like for them to want to do something like this unless it's due to defer the payments.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. We work with customers who have a large upfront or average contract value. We do work with a handful of customers who offer both monthly and annual plans Um, But instead of offering an annual plan at a call it 20% discount to the monthly plan, what we can offer is we can offer the annual plan at a, at a 10% discount, but then the end customer still gets to pay over time. So it's kind of a mix between two solutions. So walking through that more specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're collecting $10 a month, you know, which is a $120 contract. And you're trying to convince people to pay you $100 on an annual basis. We can step in. You can increase that contract size to $110 on an annual basis. You can capture that capital upfront, but then still provide your end customer, you know, a six month installment plan. So it's kind of a a hybrid approach. Um, as we see it in the market, a lot of B two B businesses are moving to upfront contract co- contracts because of they've had challenges you know with their customers over time. And that trend also just really you know drives value in what we're offering because ultimately you don't want to lose a deal just because of pricing or just because of your payment plan. we can step in the middle, hold some of that risk for you and get you paid upfront. Um, but to your point on you know we really focus on companies with high average contract values, upfront payments, um, and, and try to drive revenue growth for our, uh, partners.
0: Yeah. Cause it doesn't feel like it makes sense for companies with like low contract value, monthly payments, like, uh, but it is interesting. The notion of being able to sort of give the ability for someone to purchase a yearly plan, but at the discount, still at the discounted rate, but maybe not that full discounted rate, uh, as well. I, I could see that as well being an interesting concept that people might want to adopt. If it costs the end user, nothing really. And they have the intentions of using it for the year. They just don't have that upfront capital to do so as well, but still taking advantage of it.
1: And and pricing is always a, it's a challenging topic, right? People, people juggle pricing all the time and try to figure out, you know, how do you balance pricing with churn and retention? And how do you balance that annual plan versus monthly plan? And, You know, alternative is a solution that is complementary and and should be really a sales enablement tool to drive revenue. So, you know, within our existing customer base, we've been able to drive just under 50% revenue growth on an annualized basis for those customers by utilizing another tool in the toolkit um, to increase your win rate, close deals, and then upsell and cross-sell customers on new different solutions while providing them that flexible payment plan.
0: Yeah. Definitely. I think pricing and packaging, yeah, that is like it's an ongoing, continuous effort to really try and understand uh totally. the optimal totally. point. The optimal price points. If that even is like it's probably just a fallacy at this point, <laughs> I think
1: <laughs> uh, it, it may it may it may very well be, but it's uh, it's an initiative that a lot of people spend a lot of time on.
0: And a lot of money as well. <laughs> cool. Um, so I see we're running up on time. Baxter. Uh, I just want to ask like, a couple of questions to ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. You join a new company. Churn retention is not doing great at this company. And uh, the CEO comes to you and says, Baxter, like, so you're in charge. We need to reduce churn. We have 90 days to do it. You're in charge. What do you do? but you're not going to tell me I'm going to go and speak to customers and figure out the biggest pain points to start there, or you're not going to go look at the data and try and understand. You're just going to pick a tactic that you've seen work at a previous company and run with it blindly, hoping it works at the new company. What would that be?
1: Use alternative. That's an easy one, Andrew. (laughs)
0: That's an easy one. Have you seen it be effective?
1: (laughs) We've seen it be really, really effective on the, on the, on the turn side. So, you know, as, you know, Now that we have so much uh, transparency in terms of usage data for specific customers, you can almost tell when customers are going to churn, especially at the end of a specific contract term and proactively reaching out to them, renegotiating that transaction and offering them a payment plan can be really, really beneficial and helpful, especially with an enterprise SaaS where you know the average contract values are continuing to creep up from 10,000 to 20,000 to 30,000. And, you know, whether, you know, you can use that u- usage data, proactively reach out to them and, and offer them a payment solution. You know, it can have a it have real meaningful benefit on on reducing churn and, and increasing retention.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cool. Last question then. What is one thing that you know today about churn retention that you wish you knew when you started your career?
1: In my opinion, it's really all about product market fit and ensuring that you have designed a product with the right features that customers really value and really, really want. And so instead of approaching churn and retention uh, retroactively based on your product, you know, it's really more important to address it proactively and make sure that you're, you know, properly and adequately receiving customer feedback to build the feature set that people want to then reduce churn at the end of the day. And and that's where we spend a lot of time on at alternative, which is, you know, ensuring that we're not just trying to launch a beta product as quickly as possible, but we're ensuring that we're hitting all the dots that customers really want and and wish they had and spending more time on the build up front before deploying a product to, to to decrease churn and, and limit that type of, um poor customer feedback and and then ultimately obviously increase and strengthen those customer relationships
0: yeah absolutely i think starting with product is one of the most critical components and typically that is aligned as well with activation i think a lot of people mentioned that as well Is that um basically all coming back to like people come to you to solve a problem that they have they're looking for that's a specific solution if you're not meeting that and if your product is not hitting uh, and delivering the value, then ultimately people are going to churn. So focusing on getting like, what is your product and what's making it sticky and getting that right. uh, At the beginning, going back to the root cause for sure. Cool. Baxter, uh, we've up on time. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like how can they keep up to speed with your work?
1: Yeah, no, this has been great, Andrew. I mean, so, you know, feel free to visit our website, alternative.co. You can also find me on on LinkedIn, Baxter Lanius, uh, CEO and founder of Alternative. Uh, We, you know, have a mailing list and we offer a blog. So you can check out, you know, a number of different resources, you know, either articles that we're talking about reducing churn and and increasing retention um, as well as, you know, you utilizing, you know, buy now, pay later solutions in the B2B space. There's, there's a lot of resources and content that we're creating, but, you know, if anybody has any questions, you know, would love to hear from you um, to just to chat. And my email is baxter at alternative.co. So it's been awesome, Andrew.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, wish you best of luck going forward. And thanks for joining. Thanks, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.